Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. This is Peter Katz. Today's guest is Gina Keating, an award-winning journalist and author of Netflix, The Epic Battle for America's Eyeballs. We discuss how Netflix, a scrappy underdog, outmaneuvered Blockbuster, and eventually became one of the most important companies in the entertainment industry. I was uh, covering the entertainment industry for Reuters Newswire in LA uh, starting in 2003. And I had the Walt Disney Company, DreamWorks Animation, uh, Blockbuster Video, Pixar, when that was independent, and um, Lionsgate. And then they gave me this little internet company called Netflix, and I had never heard of it. I did not know what it did. Someone at the office had to explain it to me. And I thought, well, why am I covering this with all these other big studios? And actually, that was the most fascinating company to me of all because so many runs were made at Netflix by Walmart, by Blockbuster, by Movie Gallery, by the studios themselves trying to kill them as soon as they figured out that this was a viable distribution method. And they managed to stay alive and thrive. And I just, I, over the years, I covered them for eight years and just watching them evade this you know certain death almost every quarter was fascinating to me they were so innovative and they really understood consumers in a way that a lot of entrenched entertainment companies did not i mean they didn't have any pride at all about changing their strategy based on data and i just thought it was brilliant what they did and um and when i got to know the guys behind the story it was heartbreaking you know the the huge upheaval that they um that they caused in distribution and even the way that content is made now was wonderful for them on many levels, but on everybody who uh, lost their jobs, it was terrible. So it, was, it was uh, it was like it was like this the perfect opportunity that just that they saw like coming, and everybody else was just too big and slow to uh, avoid the comet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they just got very committed to the way they did business, and Netflix just isn't that way. And a lot of that is because of their founder, one of them, Reed Hastings, who's very mathematical. He's He doesn't get real emotional about his own ego. He just looks at the data, sees what the numbers tell him, and that's what he does. It's It feels like these media companies, they build a product that has value, whether or not it's a newspaper and you know they they get out there and they have the subscribers whatever it is that and they're there and then these tech startups are these predators that are just seeing these big slow moving beasts and they're just hunting them yeah yeah i mean ever since the advent of digital media that is a very good picture of what's going on i mean the studios have been around for a long time and that was the model for a long time but they and they're very attached to the idea that they can still control content and tell consumers where to watch it and when etc and that age is over and the tech companies understand that now would you guesstimate because obviously this, you're not we're not all privy to these numbers but is netflix more profitable than the film studios you know, that's a very good question. Uh, they've said that they'll, they'll never release uh, or do any kind of ratings data because their model is just really different. 
they're uh, not trying to get people to watch at a certain time so that they can sell advertising. Their goal is just to get people to subscribe to them and to continue paying their subscription fees. That's it. That's their entire model right there. So um, I would say that you know they're they're very profitable per subscriber. Their margins are are pretty good. Uh, so it's kind of hard to tell, really. Well, let's think about it this way, okay? A big theatrical film comes out. Let's say Transformers it makes a lot of money internationally, and there's those successes. But on the flip side, it's like these peaks and valleys that doesn't seem like there's this consistent amount of hits being made. And even with the hits and the ones that are in the middle to the ones that don't do so well, there isn't a safety net when those films go to the home entertainment. Mm -hmm. Because when yeah. you think about it, there used to be a safety net. There used to be all these windows you could profit from. So now it's almost like they they start at the theater like the old classic drive through and then they go home. And then when they're there, it seems like they're trading um, – uh, uh, dollars for dimes. You know, it's really interesting uh, that you say that because t I have two thoughts about that. Number one, um, Netflix is able, if the studios wanted to work with them, and in, in fact, many years ago, they actually did work with them to try to to, uh, to gather audiences for some of their films by advertising to Netflix customers. They have this recommendation algorithm that tells you what you might like that's in their library. I mean, everybody's home, Netflix homepage is different from everyone else's based on all the stuff that you watch. They watch how you watch it on the streaming. What you appear to like and choose, they will find something that's very similar to that and recommend it to you. And in fact, 75% of the things that they stream come from recommendations, not just people signing in and picking something that they've heard about. It's basically stuff that's served up to them. So the studios could kind of reverse engineer the way they do content by going to Netflix and saying, hey, we have these stars, this director, this is the genre. Who do you think, do you think we can make money on this? And they could really tell them. I mean, because that's the way they did House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, Hemlock Grove, all those things, the original content that they've done, that's the approach that they take. They say, can we make money with this based on the data that we have? They have 15 years of data that shows them what their their subscribers like, and that's how they decide to make stuff. And, and the so, film studios don't have the data. They don't. No, they they rely on film websites that have data, or they rely on all these different um, you know, startups that have all these platforms that they work with, but they don't have the data. It, like Netflix is all bundled in one shop. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they could do it. They could figure out a way to do it with Netflix because um, around 2005 or so, they were and and they and Netflix has done this with television shows as well. You know, they'll uh, get a very well-regarded TV show that never really did that well on cable, and they'll serve it up to uh, people who they think would like it. And in fact, uh, Mad Men owes a lot of its rating success to Netflix because it kind of wasn't going anywhere until some of the uh, old seasons got on Netflix and they started to get picked up there and then people got excited and started watching what's on uh, TV right now and that happens with a lot of shows. Breaking Bad is another one that you know if you missed it when it first came out you can still see it and that's really what mushroomed that audience was because people could go back watch it and then get really excited about the current seasons. So um, you know in that way they're really helping the industry um, but, I, you know, I don't know if that's something that the studios would ever do. But the information is there, and it's extremely sophisticated on Netflix. So you could consider that they're frenemies. 
Yeah, they could be. You know, I mean, they they could kind of trade because content is very expensive to make, as you pointed out. You know, it's very expensive and people are not going to the theaters as much because you can wait and see it on Netflix. You're kind of making that trade-off, like, do I want to spend that much money? Is it a big screen movie? You know, you're not getting that excitement because there are so many platforms that the content is available on, but you could have a safety net with that data and maybe make the trade-off by giving Netflix a cut uh, from its content costs to help you engineer your content. It's interesting. It's like there, there could be that collaboration, but more like framing it in a competitive manner or at least in an opportunist manner where you have piracy kicks in and it destroys the music industry, okay? Mm-hmm. And then the music industry has like two choices, worse or not as worse, because they go, oh, you want to work with Spotify or do you want your content pirated or, you know, there's like, or, or release of iTunes. So there's all these bad deals that are on the table. And I think in the film, in the film world, they used to have a DVD. I think they could sell a DVD for $30 or something crazy. Like just, you yeah. know, people like I got like, it's funny. My brother gave me a bag of DVDs now because he did, the idea of a physical thing is crazy. So hands me a bag of DVDs. It makes yeah. me, it makes me think I go. So what a film studio does is they spend hundreds of millions of dollars to get something into the theaters it goes to home video and you're expecting people to spend money for the content and now there isn't a lot of options so it so in a weird way by having the lack of options Netflix benefits because of piracy in a crazy way because oh, the film yeah. industry can't because it put the film industry in an awkward position where they weren't able to really monetize their content so then they go okay well at least Netflix is giving us money so they're building another threat so it's either like worse or not as bad yeah, I mean, as as we talked about earlier, I mean, the the tech companies understood that content needs to be free. Once you could digitize content and put it on the internet, there is no way that you're going to keep it within any kind of gated system. So, in my opinion, you are going to have to make it as freely available as possible, you know, possibly setting up a sort of Library of Congress style cloud or something like that, that if you don't want it to be available in subscription and you feel like you need to take it through the Windows uh, system just to maximize um, your, you know, value, that's fine. But make it available so people can see it because otherwise they are going to pirate it. It just that that the sense of a physical disc or a physical media is just gone. I mean, kids that are 20 and and younger, they've never even seen that stuff. They don't even, they don't know how to use it. It's just um, totally foreign to them that Netflix at one time actually shipped DVDs and that was the main uh, way that they made money. So uh, that's, it's just over. It needs to be much more free in terms of digital delivery and the studios need to really understand that. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're, they're playing, it's, it's almost like they're playing to themselves as the audience. They're mm-hmm. not thinking about, oh, who's this consumer? Consumer being consumer centric, which Reed Hastings is, I mean, extremely so. So they'll sell, so they'll go, let's just sell our content, people will buy it, and then people aren't buying it. And then also, too, to get someone to the movie theater, it costs a lot of money. So marketing costs go up to drive the conversion. So you're driving conversion for one movie, and then yeah. you're splitting the fees with the theaters, you know, so you have all these fees being cut in half to drive them to do this one cost. Netflix goes, if I get you, I could get you the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So that's like another reason that studios are completely at the mercy at this point of Netflix. Well, the other thing that's really interesting is with House of Cards getting so many Emmy nominations and, and some of the other originals that Netflix is doing, 
you know, doing very well. Um, creative people are going to Netflix and saying, you know what, I want to make a deal with you because in the case of House of Cards, they basically just wrote a check and said, go ahead, Kevin Spacey and David Fincher, do whatever you want. All we want is you have to deliver 20 whatever hours of content for us. Uh, you know, we're not going to meddle with you at all. You, you create it however you want. Uh, and they went out and did it, and it was fantastic. And every um, creative person who's had an experience with Netflix so far in these has loved it. They've absolutely loved it. And so Netflix is now considered kind of a producer. You know, they're, they're actually uh, getting quite a good reputation because you don't have that appointment television viewing or movie viewing um, situation. They can make it any way they want. It can be 45 minutes long or... 22 or 61 or whatever because they don't have to fit it into a slot. It doesn't have to, you know, air sequentially. You can make it go in any order that you want because people can watch it anywhere they want. So the creativity is unbounded uh, on on the internet and I just think that that's kind of the way that uh, things are going to go and the studios are going to have to adapt to that world. Yeah, it's 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 funny. It was it's it's adapting or working for that world, you know, at a certain point, who knows what, what could happen in the far future. Because Netflix is becoming more and more powerful and there's all these tech players. And what you're doing is you're saying they're giving creative freedom because if you get a subscription, you don't need to keep bringing people back. So like you could be so much, there's much more risk that could be taken and, and you're not relying on advertising. So it's like HBO succeeded by, you know, you know, highest common, you know, it's like the highest quality audience versus some TV now, which is the lowest common denominator. So it's almost like you're chasing out a lot of people who are maybe even more affluent to these subscription models, which is great for the, uh, Netflix. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, it You know, the, the cord cutting that people are doing with cable, it should be sending a big message to both cable companies and the studios. Um, number one, you know, people want to watch what they want to watch. They don't want to pay for 500 channels when nothing is on. They want, uh, you know, they love to have a huge universe of content, but they want at the same time somebody to go in who knows them and say, based on what we know about your taste, here's something that you would like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because people, people are, um, they're getting extremely particular about what they watch. They're watching more TV, but they're particular. They want really good content. They want not to watch things over and over. They want different storylines. They want really great series, one that they can go from one great series to the next great series or film or whatever. And they're getting, you know, very discriminating. And the, and the term being a geek or geeking out is becoming so much more popular uh, now because of Netflix, because there's such a broad range of selections that you could go down a rabbit hole of choices. Like for instance, I think my mom's now a sci-fi geek and I, she wouldn't have, no, I'm, I'm totally serious. And she wouldn't like sci-fi content or any of that in the back in the day. But now, because it's so easy, it's easier to become a fan. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just the the ease of uh, of being able to, you know, turn it on, turn it off. Uh, it's, I, I mean, I'm the same way. I started watching Caprica on uh, Netflix, which is not something that I would have ever watched. It's the Battlestar Galactica prequel. Yeah. Um, I liked Battlestar Galactica in high school, but I never in a million years would have pulled that up. And I just did it, and I'm hooked on it. It's crazy. I never would have picked that. But there's such a huge universe, and it's just really strange the way that that Netflix algorithm can 
sort of send you on this voyage of discovery into worlds that you never even imagined that you would like. And that's what people love about it. Yeah, it's able to take you from their Iron Man movie or whatever, some like the big costly content and go, hey, if we rely just on that, we're going out of business too. But we're going to be able to know enough about you to go, hey, do you like documentaries from Chile? Do you like a TV show from Britain? Sooner or later, you're like, wow, I have such a diversified taste and I'm geeking out on this. And because of that, they're able to because they're able to buy all sorts of content because you don't always need the hundred million dollar movie or the big TV show. You could watch an indie film or a foreign film, and sooner or later, they're able to really customize, which is very difficult on all these other uh, entertainment producers. Yeah, and I mean, they've made no secret of the fact that they are not going to have everything. They don't even want to have every movie. They just say, you know, we we know what our subscribers like based on, uh, you know, they're constantly doing testing um, on the website. You're looking, you know, it's it's watching you as you watch the movies and seeing uh, movies and TV shows and seeing what you watch. And, you know, if they get enough interest in a certain movie or a certain uh, television show, they'll buy that. And in fact, their deals are evolving now, whereas they used to buy, you know, a package of movies when they for example, did this deal with stars a few years ago. They just bought a whole bunch of movies uh, and they took it because they were first run movies. Now they're a lot more discriminating. The, the deals are different. They'll do original content or they'll do exclusive content with uh, DreamWorks animation or something like that. So they can get specific shows that they want, not have to buy a whole bunch of them just to get like two or three that they really like. And the cable, cable uh, industry really should uh, take notice of that, as I said, because you know, why pay for all that when there is, you, you should be able to buy a la carte, both at the consumer level and at the industry level. Because, and I think it'll make content better, frankly. I, I think the challenge is, is that all the competitors of Netflix, they're all competing against each other and it's so fragmented. And that's mm -hmm. why Netflix has this competitive advantage is they're their own boss, you know? And I think that when you have all this, this fragmented power structure of various film studios, there's TV networks, it's hard for them to be like, this is the bundle you know, service because then be very limited. And since they're competing against them on a week to week basis, it's difficult. I mean, Hulu is a representation of them, everyone making concerted effort not to be like last in line. Yeah, Hulu is, is pretty good. I mean, I, I have to admit that I'm really surprised that they're still growing. Um, because at first when they uh, launched that service, I thought, oh my God, this thing is fabulous. You can get any television show. You can watch all the seasons. It was wonderful. And then they started um, windowing that content too. And I and it really it disappointed me a lot because, you know, you there's nothing more frustrating than going on there and, you know, watching one season, two seasons, and then you can't get the next season or... You know, you can't get the episode that you want. And I thought that was kind of frustrating. But, um, you know, since Hulu is studio owned, I guess that didn't really surprise me because it's like they have these moments of clarity where they're understanding apparently what people want. And then all of a sudden they get scared of piracy or whatever. And then they kind of ruin it. So and and it's, I, it's interesting. Like, so Hulu is one is one competitor. So if I was thinking of this as like this grand like tournament, okay. You have Hulu that comes with ads, okay, and not perfect with the windowing. And mm -hmm. then you have HBO, which hasn't really worked out. And finally, you have Amazon, which seems like the most worthy competitor. Yeah, you know, and Netflix was always most afraid of Amazon because Jeff Bezos and that team really 
understand uh, sort of the same thing that Netflix does about consumers, about how quickly their tastes change and how you sh you need to monitor them to understand how to sell to them. I mean, Jeff Bezos and Re Reed Hastings are equals in understanding that. The problem with Amazon Prime is that um, it, it's it's kind of tacked on to a huge retail operation. So I'm not, I, it's fantastic, don't get me wrong, I use it all the time. Uh, whenever I can't find something on Netflix, I will go to Amazon and, and buy whatever I want. So I'm not knocking it at all. But I just think that Netflix, I look at it now as more of a channel, more of like an internet, a real internet movie channel. I don't see Amazon that way yet. I don't think so, Amazon has the taste yet. I think Netflix yeah. started off as where Amazon is now. Mm, yeah. They were big, a lot of stuff. I mean, if you think about YouTube, YouTube is just like this endless like labyrinth of content. But then there's channels springing up on top of YouTube. If you like yeah. sports, if you like whatever it is, you have that. So I think that Amazon's like this big broad. We got content, but I don't think they really have that their brands there yet. Still, you're right. It feels tacked on. Yeah, and also, you know, talking about YouTube, I love YouTube. I use it all the time. Um, I'm on YouTube as much as anything else because I love short-form content. And I think that is the next thing is, you know, some of these short-form series are fantastic. You know, cat, you know, the pet videos, the popularity of that just shows you that there is a huge appetite for that. And really, it's an underserved market as far as content goes. I think that somebody could make a lot of money doing uh, doing that on YouTube, and you know, just as, like I said, establishing a, um, an identity for a channel. I think that that's wide open right now. And those are the territory that Reed Hastings historically said, "Hey, there's people doing it, and they're doing it great, and I'm not doing it." So it's interesting. Like he's not he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to battle everybody. But I think that uh, Jeff, Jeff Bezos is probably one of the strongest uh, at uh, taking them on because he understands not trying to make profit immediately. So they're very similar because Amazon had very thin margins and people complained, but as they complained, Amazon has kept on you know, expanding, expanding until there really wasn't a way to take them on. No, you know what, and they're, like you said, they're very alike in that way, Reed Hastings and Jeff Bezos, because they, uh, you know, they're both publicly traded companies and they're you know, subject to a lot of pressure from investors. But really, the thing, one of the things I admired the most about Reed Hastings and why I wanted to write the book was that he put the future of the company and his vision before satisfying um, a very whimsical market. You know, people got really nervous about, about him running at such thin margins and sometimes no margins to grow the company as fast as possible. A lot of people doubted that strategy. And, you know, he stuck with it. He was like, you know, this is the only way we're going to survive. We have got to get big very fast so that we can we can do these content deals. We can stay ahead of Blockbuster and Walmart and everybody else that's in Redbox and everybody that's trying to do this stuff. And he was right. And Jeff Bezos is the same way. He knew he had to grow all of his categories and he just drowned out all the peanut gallery and just kept on going. Now, in your book, uh, what were... What were the what was the feedback you got from the players at Netflix about the criticism? How did they deal with it? Was it must have been really challenging to say, please, like look in this crystal ball. In the future, we're gonna really own this market. Yeah, they um, that I actually talked to them about that along the way a lot because most of the Wall Street analysts uh, really thought that this was a niche. They thought it was some kind of little flashy 
thing that was going to flash in the pan that was going to, you know, peak and die um, because the studios were interested in doing the exact same thing and they just could not fathom that this little software company could do it. So they were, um, you know, they learned to drown it out a lot. Uh, they just basically just didn't listen and they kept executing the way that they wanted and they believed in their model because they had, like I said, all that data. They set up the user interface of Netflix to be a market a market research platform. So they were gathering this immense amount of data on their on their consumers and really um, seeing a lot of traction as they went on. And so their numbers were, were going great. Uh, and it took Blockbuster and a lot of the industry a long time to figure out that this was here to stay. And the Netflix people had figured this out. So, you know, they were able to kind of keep the faith by seeing the traction that they were getting in their oldest markets. And, and they just kind of kept hope alive that way because they just believed in the numbers so much when the conventional wisdom was against them for such a long time. It's, it's funny because blockbusters probably at that time was thinking, I'm big, therefore I will win. But they don't understand there isn't like this feedback loop. Well, Netflix had so much analytics, so the critics could say all they want, but they're actually seeing the numbers and the usage and how people are increasingly more devoted to Netflix as their prime source of you know video content. But nobody else saw it, so it's almost like they had the secret you know operation that only they were privy to. Like this, uh. there's like a secret sauce that they had, you know, the special sauce, because a lot of blockbuster doesn't understand how they see the world, because they weren't as number driven. So right, Netflix, exactly. Netflix, Netflix may get all the critics in the world, but they see if something's, if they see like this hockey stick, you know, growth over a long time, if they're able to predict certain things. All the the critics and the competitors are have are now are like almost shooting blind with because of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, think about what Hollywood was like and how they made their decisions. You know, up to probably you know the '80s, and you know, it was basically studio heads were considered to be, you know, extremely valuable because they could pick hits. I mean, you know, um, Michael Eisner at Disney was ex extremely well paid because of his success over at Paramount and, and at Disney. You know, he was able to really pick great movies that did very well and were profitable, and that was considered a gift. You know, that's how, how it was done. There was a huge human factor in picking content back in, in those days. And when Reed Hastings came along, he just turned that on his head and he was, you know, he just said, no, we can figure out how to serve consumers by actually studying them instead of doing it this very, um, you know, fly by night, not fly by night, but sort of, um, you know, instinctual way. We can do it with numbers. And, and nobody really believed in that, I don't think. I didn't think, I think that they didn't believe that you could quantify people's tastes as an algorithm and Netflix has proved that you can do that. And they were kind of an outsider going in so they didn't have to like apply all these rules that have kind of weighed down the the past um, you know content producers and distributors. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and really if you if you uh, think about it, they started Netflix started as basically a an amazon for for movies they were that was their idea they wanted to sell something over the internet it was 1997 when they started and they just thought you know amazon is cool that's going to make a lot of money e we want to get into e-commerce what is something that we can sell online that we can uh, ship very cheaply and that everybody is going to want 
and they settled on DVD, which had come out that same year. And they thought, okay, well, we're going to sell and rent DVDs and we'll have all of them. That is going to be our, um, our marketing, um, um, a message is that we'll have everything, you know, because it was hard to get DVDs at that time. Uh, and so they thought, well, you know, people might not want to invest in this technology until it's proven. So if we can supply the DVDs, you know, uh, we'll, this could be a great market for us. And then they finally moved into rental when they realized that they were going to get squeezed out by Walmart, Best Buy, you know, these big box retailers who could buy all the DVDs at a much lower um a cost because they were buying in huge amount of volume and sell it at a at a lower margin and and they finally said we're too little we need to get out of this and do rental so that was how Netflix evolved they they were thinking kind of of streaming they eventually knew that that would happen but I don't think that they anticipated the extent to which they were going to shape the future of content delivery and production they were just knew how to pivot yeah they were fantastic at it they knew they were hungry they were scared they were being you know attacked at all sides by much much larger companies and it really focused them they were, had no pride at all about what they had to try they had absolutely no sacred cows and i think that that made them a fantastic company because it, i mean it took them 10 years really to to get clear of the idea that they were going to go broke the next quarter so Reed, Reed Hastings, it wasn't like he was scared of failing. He just wanted to get as much data as possible to guide decisions. What were some of the predictions that now are taken for granted that far back he predicted? And which ones were way off? Uh, well, he actually, some of the ones that were really spot on were, um, as I said, they knew that they were going towards digital delivery from the very beginning because both he and the other co-founder, Mark uh, Randolph, were both uh, tech guys. So they knew that eventually, you know, the internet would support uh, digital delivery of uh, video and, and sound files. But um, they predicted, they weren't sure if it would be a download situation or streaming. And when they saw YouTube, they realized it's, it's going to be streaming. That's the way it's going to go. And, uh, and that was correct. They actually had a download product that they were going to uh, launch in 2005, and it just wasn't any good. And a lot of studios were doing that same approach, and they, they just pulled it before they even uh, launched it because it just wasn't very good. And they th put all their eggs into the streaming basket, and that turned out to be the correct decision. The other, uh, I think, correct decision or the correct prediction that he's made is that he says probably in five to ten years, we're not going to be watching network television as we know it. We're going to be watching internet TV that looks like an iPad with apps on it where you're going to pick Netflix maybe and you're going to do, you know, maybe some a la carte from Amazon Prime and you'll have your sports on some other application. And that's basically how you're going to watch TV. You're not going to flip channels. You're going to go through applications and you're going to be able to assemble your viewing with um, sort of an a la carte assembly of whatever it is that you want to watch. And I think that that's, it is in fact moving that way. Um, some of the things that they did wrong, um, they in invested really early in um, independent films and thought that that was going to be a great way to differentiate themselves. And it did work for a while, uh, but it was very low budget stuff that they were investing in. And, um, and I think it did a great thing to endear them to the independent film community, and that helped a lot. Uh, but what's really worked better is 
this premium glitzy beautiful content that they're making now is really making the difference and i at one time they didn't think they'd ever go into programming and now they have and it's been a huge success and red envelope was the name of the indie film company kind of offshoot i forgot the name yeah, that's correct. Yeah, Red Envelope. Red, Red Envelope. And now, they, and they, yeah, and they 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 were the they, they tested it out, but it, you're right, it wasn't it was more indie, it was less glitzy. Do you think at this point most of Netflix focus in original programming will be a TV series type content because you create kind of a habit while they're going to avoid one-offs or there is opportunities for uh, feature films too? Well, they're doing docs and um I think uh, comedy, like comedy specials, they're investing in that as sort of a sort of feature film type, well, not feature, but film type things. Really, for right now, and God knows how this will evolve just because it's there, it's constantly evolving, but um, they get a lot more bang for their buck with series just because, you know, they'll put a lot of money into a feature film and it's two hours of viewing, whereas with they can put the same amount of money or less into something like House of Cards or Hemlock Grove or something, and they get, you know, 26 hours of content, and, and that puts people on the service for a long time. It gives them exposure to those consumers, and, you know, they can market to those con consumers every time they put on, uh, you know, they watch those episodes. So that's really more valuable to them in terms of dollars and cents. Um, than movies but you know who knows what's going to happen i was really surprised when they invested in house of cards because it was a hundred million dollars and i've never seen them invest in anything remotely that expensive before yeah it's they have that inside information that only later on people understand exactly why they did it because but at the time it's like is that why they're doing it but they know they know they know more about ourselves and our friends and their families than we know about ourselves and when it comes to our content consumption habits yeah, I mean, just watch. If you watch what they invest in, you will have a very good picture of what people are watching at home. I mean, binge TV was such a big deal about five or six years ago when streaming first came out. The New York Times wrote about it. You know, people were binging on series. And, you know, this, the TV series they had sort of bought just to pad out the streaming offering because there were like twelve or 1,500 films and television shows only on the streaming service when it launched it was very thin and they basically put tv on there just to make it look a little better and then you know that gets on there people find it and they get very excited so netflix pivots towards more you know buying up more tv then they see a lot of kids you know people uh putting netflix on for their kids to watch kids pro programming they make a big deal with dreamworks animation and with nickelodeon you know so if you watch where they're buying you will see what people are watching, what their data is telling them. Because they're so data-driven. Yeah. I, I imagine individuals who came from the world of Blockbuster, they probably look at Netflix like, oh my God, I shoulda, coulda. If, if a time machine existed and uh, these executives had access to it, how far back do they need to steer their ship to avoid hitting an iceberg? Well, well, it's it's a very funny thing. Um, in my book, I talk about how Blockbuster actually almost took Netflix out in two thousand seven. Uh, they had a an offering. They had you know they had a streaming service called Blockbuster Online. It it was very clunky, but um, it was cheaper than Netflix, and it was growing very fast. And the reason for that was because they were offering a hybrid service, which was fantastic. You could you know rent a DVD at a Blockbuster store. 
and or on Blockbuster online and then take it back in uh, to the Blockbuster store and get something else. And so people were signing up for this like crazy and they were about to kill Netflix. Netflix was losing subscribers. Um, it, unfortunately, it was so expensive that um, they couldn't sustain it. So I would say, and the other thing was, Blockbuster was signing deals for online content long before Netflix was doing this. I mean, John Antiaco, the CEO of Blockbuster, knew in 2001 that they needed to do something about online delivery. And he tried to do something with Enron, believe it or not, um, because they had a fiber optics um, distribution network that they were trying to put together before Net, uh, Enron went broke. But they could never figure out how to get the, the pipes to people's homes. So they were way too early with that, and then they didn't follow through. So, so if they had their time machine, they would have gone to that point and said, hey, we have to throw everything at it. I think would have had to go back to like 2001 or 2002 and just keep going with what they were already doing. But their market research showed them that nobody would want to rent DVDs online. And that's how Netflix started. And they just ignored it until Netflix got way too big in 2004. And then it was, you know, they had to throw you know, a billion dollars at, at that problem and they still couldn't catch them. What was it uh, like dealing with like kind of being influenced by the corporate culture of Netflix? Because you were so part of it. Like, what did you learn, uh, you know, being being part of their their kind of evolution and studying it? Um, it was, you know, I admired them so much uh, and, and, you know, and they did a very good job of cultivating me. You know, I mean, I've been a journalist for 25 years, so I've seen a lot and, you know, been influenced by a lot of people or, you know, they've tried to. Um, and I have to say they were very masterful at, you know, bringing me in and, and giving me access. Uh, to anybody that I wanted. So that that was extremely helpful and very smart of them to do that because, you know, while I was reporting their financials, you know, I understood their business model probably better than anybody else in uh, in the financial uh, reporting industry or financial news industry. And so, you know, I was uh, I was a little bit more forgiving of some of the things that they were doing than some other reporters. So I thought that was pretty brilliant. Um, and then, you know, while I was writing the book, I learned about the whole startup team, all of whom had left by the time I started covering Netflix, and learned the story of, of a real yin and yang of how Netflix was formed. There was a very creative uh, nucleus of people who came in to start it up, and then there were a bunch of engineers that were led by Reed Hastings that took over that idea and the platform that they created uh, that that original team created and really optimized it so that it could compete with these bigger companies. And that was, to me, a fantastic story. That made the story even better than the one that I saw because it was kind of heartbreaking for these people to invest, you know, three or four or five years of their lives creating this uh, this beautiful little Internet company that at the same time, while so creative and so responsive to consumers, really had no chance against these huge behemoths that they were going to go up against. So they had to really turn that over and let Reed Hastings make it what it is now. Um, so that was that was fascinating. And as a leader, what are the qualities of Reed Hastings that you feel give him a competitive advantage beyond the technology, but just how he looks at the world? 
Yeah, that's a. I think one of the most interesting things about my book is that um, you know I knew him as a reporter. I interviewed him probably you know half dozen times a year, uh, just because of earnings and product rollouts and stuff. And I thought I knew him very well. Um, he is a fantastic CEO to interview because he is uh, very thorough when he answers questions. He's very honest. Um, I never felt like he was trying to spin me or hide anything. Um, but at the same time, uh, to work for him is very different. He is a um, very results-oriented person. He likes to have very bright people around him who are made to perform every single day. I mean, they get a lot of freedom, but for, in exchange for that, they have to really put on the juice every single day. And the turnover at Netflix was 20%. I mean, it was not um, an easy place to work, but the people who thrived in that environment were like pro football players, you know? Um, and, and so he was, while very uh, genuine, uh, was also just a taskmaster. And I never, would have, I never would have gotten that from the interviews that I had with him if I hadn't spoken to the people who worked for him. And I think that was really important. He's very unemotional about results. You, you per perform, you deliver results, or you're gone. And it's, it's brutal, but it's what he had to do to make this company survive. That's, uh, that's, that's fascinating. He's, in a way, almost feels like on one front, he's like this friendly, he's open. Another front, it feels like he's very like Steve Jobs. So you have like this kind of mix of like personalities. Yeah, I mean, he's not a screamer like Steve Jobs. I mean, I actually also covered Pixar, um, so I had some experience with Steve Jobs as well. I mean, he never yelled at me or anything like that, but I did interview him, uh, and he was not very friendly. He tended to be a little bit um, closed off and difficult uh, to interview as a, you know, a financial journalist. Um, Reed Hastings is not like that. He's very open uh, and very genial. And my understanding of how he works with people is not that he is, you know, yelling and screaming at them. It's that he just basically looks at them very unemotionally. And, you know, who cares if you were here for 10 years and you, uh, you know, you created this really important feature. You have outlived your usefulness at this company and now you got to go. And that's basically what he'll say. It's It's not a personal thing. It's very... Uh, very data-driven. Everything about his company, about him, is very analytical. And the same and way so, he chooses movies is the same way he chooses who's working at his company. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's people get you know there were people who felt that he uh, was a little bit. Um, they actually told told me things like he has an emotional IQ of zero. He is emotionally autistic. Uh, stuff like that. I mean, that that's in my book. There are several stories uh, talking about stuff like that that uh, was was extremely interesting. And um, I just bought your book from Amazon, you know, because I can't wait to get into it. Do you have a where where could someone check out your work, like uh, your website and purchase um, uh, Netflix? Um, my website is Netflixed like the book, netflixed.com. And actually the paperback just came out about two weeks ago. So it's perfect timing for us to talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. You can check me out at petercats.net. Feel free to email me at catsfilms at gmail.com.